we would love to uh, get on with some questions and um, I'm probably only going to do a, two or three from the from the cards because I think it's always um, great if we can hear a question or two from the floor. So um, if you're frustrated that I haven't read your question out, um, do just throw your hand in the air and uh, we would love to um, just uh, hear your voice, see your face as well. So let's do that. Let's do it that way if we can. But I will start off just asking a couple of these questions. Um, here's an interesting one. So bit of a head scratcher. Um, isn't it also a type of self-narcissism that we believe that a God must exist, that we are too special, mm. that we just cannot simply not exist after death. We're too special for nothingness. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's a great question because I think I would agree with the question in the sense that I do think we, I think there is a, a conviction inside the human heart that says... This world, human existence, um, perhaps not each of us, but at least as a humanity, there is something incredibly special about us, that we aren't just another creature. Do you remember I mentioned that quote from Ernst Becker where he kind of talked about the towering significance of humanity? And I do think there are lots of things about our existence that does make us feel that sense of specialness, that does ask the question, essentially, our life can't just be a uh, set of random, meaningless processes that kind of brought us into being that kind of means that we just kind of exist on this planet and die. There must be more to the human narrative, the human experience, than just a kind of um, existence that comes from nothing and ends in nothing. I think many of us would feel an instinct that there must be more. And in fact, that's what draws some of us to the Christian faith, I suppose. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a fascinating question. I think if we were, if we were trying to um, invent a God to make us confirm all our beliefs about ourselves and our own specialness, the God that we would invent wouldn't be the God of Christianity because he is so infinitely more perfect than us. Mm. So I think there are such things as made-up religions and the kinds of gods that exist within made-up religions tend to possess the same flaws as us, so they become mirrors of us. Um, but I think if we were really as, if, I think if narcissism were at the root of our, you know, feeling that we're so special is at the root of the reason for our belief in God, then I think the God we would think of would not be the God of Christianity because, you know, anybody who has, you know, the whole Bible is full of this sense of awe and the reality mm. that God is so much greater and the, the great sort of crisis of the human soul is the sense that I am, I am unworthy, and there mm. needs to be a solution to that problem in the face of such a good God. It's, it's an excellent question. I'm probably going to chew on that one for days to come, but thank you for that. It's great. Um, a little bit of a softer one, which um, just given one of the big heads in your talk was to do with the selfie age, and you, you, went, for the, you went for the jugular on social media there as a, a main point there. Are there any positives? to social media, and why such a contrarian stance? <laughs> I, I genuinely believe the more and more I interact with social media that it's the source of a great sense of discomfort in our culture and our lives. So I'm not sure I, I want to argue for much that's redemptive about it. Um, I think I would just say that all the things it promises are illusions and 
a minor version of the good in, the, in reality. So, for example, like it promises connection. It promises relationship. And so maybe that's my, my way of staying in touch with my friends and, and staying in touch with what's going on in their lives. But it doesn't actually give that genuine, real, tangible connection. It gives the illusion of connection as you watch what's going on in their lives, but you're not actually drawn closer into face-to-face, hand-to-hand relationship. Um, so I suppose I'm doubling down on my critique and saying um, that it, it, it's like crack cocaine because it, it promises something. <laughs> Um, not that I've experienced that myself, um, <laughs> but it, in a sense that there is a dopamine hit when you when you get likes or, or things like that um, on on social media, um, when perhaps when people respond to what you've written or or the image that you're creating of yourself, but it's become you become like a hamster in a treadmill chasing those hits, chasing those dopamine release, um, rather than actually pursuing genuine relationships with individuals. I mean, if you want a slightly more balanced. <laughs> I would probably say that look, there, are, there probably are some benefits in social media. I can think of a number that occur to me in terms of connections with people you wouldn't meet otherwise around the world who share similar interests. It's been a platform for, um, for raise, exposing evil in the world. There are various benefits, which I think everyone can point to. But I, I, I find, like, I mean, I'm not, I don't think, are you on social media at all? If you don't count It'd be WhatsApp. hypocritical, wouldn't it, if you WhatsApp. Were? Um, okay, it's not count? really social media. I actually do have a LinkedIn account still. Is that okay? Do you really? Yeah, right. but also I find that is a good illustration of like there was a day when you would go on LinkedIn and just see the career trajectory of your peers yeah. and now I've become a pastor, obviously have very limited yeah. career trajectory. Um, <laughs> and so I'd just be like, oh, well, I just feel discontent about my job. I was, I was really enjoying being a pastor. Then I went on LinkedIn and, and just compared myself. So that's a perfect illustration of the one remaining social media is not yeah. a source of joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just down on it. Um. I think as well, I mean, I, I think to be fair to the point that Jeremy was making, I don't think that the critique is necessarily of the theory of platforms with which you connect with other people. The critique is really of what we then do with them mm. and how we use them. You know, the, the inclination is just the way it's set up is that it, it creates an opportunity to posture and to perform, and um, that that is quite toxic to the soul. Uh, whether you believe in God or not, it just seems to twist you in on yourself and mm. turn you into something, a worse version of yourself online um, than you maybe you are, or maybe the real version, but just without filter, like it's coming out. And uh, so there's something really poisonous, I think, and you know, I think the best literature on this tells you that because of the because of the business, uh, uh, because of the way the businesses are structured, they're designed in such a way to to almost like the crack cocaine thing to feed the worst aspects of our nature and to expose them and to keep us addicted to them. So, I mean, I I am no fan, and I found that it's uh, it's it's been a, a destructive force in my own life in the past, and something that I therefore have, have really just shunned. Um, and it's not, you know, there are bits you miss about it. There's stuff you miss because there's some good in there. And so you can recognize the good, but is it really worth it is the mm. question that I asked myself and, uh, you know, sort of came to the conclusion, no. All right. This one is a little bit more, um, I suppose, a little bit more vulnerable and a, a, the kind of question I think you would enjoy. Um, how do you feel God's love? How do you really believe it? It feels mm. empty, like believing a concept you don't yet believe. 
That's a really good question. Mm. I think if I could help you feel the love of God tonight, then my work here would be done. So in a sense, I think you're getting really to the heart of things. I think it isn't... It is primarily, or at least it starts intellectually. It starts historically and factually. And we say, like, it is a historical fact that Jesus died for you, that he was willing to suffer and be punished and experience physical um, punishment, humiliation, etc., for your sake. So if you, if you really believe that, that already, would shape, that already would warm your heart, just to hear that idea that he loved you enough to die for you. Um, as you go on in the Christian life, I think the Bible does talk about it also being experiential, that it's something that you, that, that God even gives us his Holy Spirit as a way of revealing more of the love of God to us. And we experience it in relationship. For example, as a Christian now, I would say I've been a Christian for about 16 years. As I experience the warmth and love of being part of a family, being part of a community of people who love me, even though perhaps we don't come from the same place, we don't do the same jobs, we have, in, in the human terms, we don't have much in common, so to speak, and yet, because we have this shared faith and because we have part of the same community, I'm then welcomed in and loved by them, and that, that sense of welcome and sense of inclusion is incredibly powerful. Um, so I think we experience the love of God objectively, so to speak, from thinking about it from a, a fact in history. Um, we experience it experientially through the Holy Spirit, and I can't really explain that very well to you, except that the Bible gives the picture of like a father loving a child. Like if you've ever been, if you had a relationship with your dad and you kind of, and you like, what does it feel like to receive a hug from your dad? It's like that, but, but better, right? Like the perfect father is how the Bible describes God. And then I would say you experience from other people and in community. Um, but all of these are like abstractions that each kind of give you a different lens on that same reality um, of love. And I suppose we might argue that you will actually experience an even greater sense of that love um, after death in heaven. Uh, can I add one yeah, more? Yeah, please, please. I'll... So I, I, I agree with everything Jeremy said. And I will just say, by the way, that I think the Christian faith, like your, your, your maturity in the Christian faith is directly correlated to the degree you understand the love of God. So it's not something that you expect to get entirely from day one. But... You grow, and you grow in God's love, and that transforms your life. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to add, though, is that along with the three things you mentioned, there's also the good things that God has given us in life. Mm. Um, when you take a night, think like, so your last, your last point about self-care, one of the thoughts that struck me was that it's not entirely wrong. There's mm. a, it's a counterfeit of something real, which I think is a kind of Christian way of looking at a lot of the good things in this life, that that you take something that God made good and then there's a counterfeit twisted version. And self-care is a kind of counterfeit twisted version of the enjoyment of God's good gifts. Mm. And so you, know, you can kind of put out of your mind for a moment the, the, uh, the image of the austere, you know, sort of Puritan version of Christianity which wants to, um, wants to do away perhaps with some enjoyment, with some pleasure in life with the good things of life because that isn't the real that isn't actually the christian faith the christian faith is a celebration of the good things that we enjoy like mm. beer and food and sex in the right place and with the right person 
and in and all of the, the wonderful experiences of nature and creation and each mm. other and laughter and all of that is a way of worshipping so that it, it doesn't become about me. It's not self-care. I don't indulge in the good things of this world to love myself. I indulge in the good things of this world as a way of worshipping the creator because I experience his love in all the wonderful gifts he's given to me and I can say thank you. Mm. I can say thank you to someone and I think that is an absolutely fundamental part of the way that we experience his goodness. It's good. I'd love to take a question from the floor. We've got probably time for one or two, maybe. So um, there's a hand went straight up here, Zach. Can you come and... Uh, he's coming. Oh, on hold, yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so you've um, you framed the issue of self-obsession as a, as a very modern problem, um, and um, I wonder whether it's actually a very old one. So... When you were speaking, I was thinking of um, St. Augustine's kind of uh, struggle against Pelagianism, <laughs> which was this kind of heresy that we could sort of save ourselves in the early church. And obviously that kind of specter of, as you put it, as you put it us being the main characters in our own story kind of rears its head again and again in the history of, um, of the Christian tradition. And I suppose my question is, as, as Christians who are trying to speak into the culture in a way which is relevant and impactful, how do we kind of strike that balance between, on one hand, drawing attention, attention to kind of mod, the modern peculiarities that we're wrestling with at the moment, but also telling that kind of deeper trans-historical story of kind of human fallenness and brokenness and sin? Because there's, I think there's a real danger that if we, mm. if we just focus on the modern aspects, that maybe our critique kind of gets recapitulated and we end up with a different That's kind cool. of self-obsession, a kind of cult of wholeness, and we're not on social media and we're kind of better than that, yeah. which again is that spectra of kind of like pridefulness kind of rearing its head. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think what you're getting at is the way that these, these are like modern manifestations of the same old challenge. So I think probably the best way of thinking about this would be the way that Jesus himself puts his finger on this same problem of self-aggrandizement or self-performative... Um, the kind of the dynamics of performing and trying to justify your existence in front of others um, in the Gospels. So, like, he speaks about those who are the religious teachers of his culture, and they are going around always, like, um, trying to put on this, present this facade to others. And it talks about them as, as whitewashed tombs. Like, on the outside, they look white and be beautiful, and on the inside, they're just dead inside. And they're going through all these religious rituals, they're fasting and praying and doing all sorts of things to get the... Um, praise of their community and so I suppose in a way what you'd want to do is draw the parallels between a guy like that the, the, the whitewashed tomb of the 2,000 years ago and the modern Instagram blogger who is I don't know a clean eating um, blogger on, the, on, the, on, their, on their feed but on, in private they're eating all sorts of like fast food and, <laughs> and like the way that basically we're always these kind of trends that we're seeing in society are as you say, as old as time, effectively. So we're always trying to present an, uh, a positive view of ourselves in order to get the approval of others and to be thought well of by others. Um, I suppose because it comes back to the fact that there is a universal longing for acceptance and validation in the human heart that goes all the way back to Plato and before that. Um, so in, a, in that way, I'd say you speak to the univer we speak to the universality as well as we speak to how this works its way in our culture. Good. Uh, okay, one last question then. I've got an urgent hand. I think your hand actually went up. So, can we, Zach, have you, where are you, mate? 
He's at the back. Just down here, sorry. Sorry, I made you walk the furthest possible distance to do this, didn't I? So. Um, this lady. This lady here. Hi. Yep, thanks. Um, so does narcissism not supersede religion? Because you've got plenty of religious people who do all the things that you've just said. And is it not more a sickness of technology and that we're not able to sort of focus on the fundamentals of what we need to live? And we've gone past that. Because when you look at poorer communities, there's a much stronger sense of community and a lot of them have that common exposure to struggling for things that they need, whereas in Western society in particular, we don't have that problem, so we focus on the self and then make mountains out of molehills. I, I think there is truth um, to what you're saying in the, in the way that self-indulgence f- is fed by a culture that is in large part comfortable and kind of more economically prosperous than it ever has been. So that um, I've heard uh, one uh, writer, I think it says Ross... Do hat. I can't remember. I don't know exactly how you how you say it, but um, he wrote a, who wrote a book about the uh, decadent society that speaks to the problem that you're that you're putting your finger on. Um, and I think you're also right in the way that you describe this as a universal problem, aka narcissism, or rather, what you were saying at the very beginning was of your point was the. Um, I think there is a universality to this problem that transcends rich and poor, um, that essentially we will always want to feed the self. We will always naturally gravitate towards self, selfishness, basically. And that's why I think you need the story coming from exter- outside yourself, drawing you outside of yourself, saying, look, you were never meant just to kind of feed your own needs. You were always meant for a relationship with a God who made you and calls you out of yourself to then love and serve your neighbour if that makes sense. To flourish properly, we need that um, to be drawn out of the natural tendency towards self-gratification. Excellent. Um, I think I'm going to have to call it a day there, but what we want to do is just mention the, the SALT course to you all, because I think this would be something that a, f- a number of you would love to, to take part in. So in a moment, we're just going to show a very brief video um, to give you a flavour and a taste of what that's about. But essentially, the SALT course is a succession of seven evenings. Uh, it begins next week on Tuesday evening. It takes place in a, in a cafe not far from here. And um, the aim is, so yeah, Costa Coffee on the Cut, which is a street um, not far from here at all. The aim is to give you an opportunity to engage with some of these questions in a bit more depth. So there's a short talk, and then there's uh, this conversation that takes place around tables. Um, the themes that are addressed have to do with, as you can see on the screen, meaning, satisfaction, truth, morality, hope, peace, and faith. And uh, it's a really a, a wonderful place without judgment. There are always people from across spectrums of belief um, and, and faith or no faith at all. Um, and a place where you can actually just voice what you think and de- dialogue and debate with others in a kind of non-threatening environment. So if that sounds like something that would just intrigue you, interest you, or perhaps just offer you an opportunity to think more deeply about things you've never confronted, then we want to warmly invite you to that. Um, each evening there'll, there'll be an opportunity to have food and it's free and uh, as you eat and get to know other folk, you will enjoy yourself. I guarantee it'll be a really, really good experience. So um, please do consider um, coming to that. You can go to saltcourse.co.uk and uh, sign up, register for the course and we'll give you more details.